Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You get a test, and you get a test, and you get a test. The lead starts right now. The White House website to request free at-home COVID tests goes live as the Omicron variant continues blazing its ugly trail. And it was supposed to roll out across the country in just hours, but several airlines say 5G interferes with the technology planes use to land in bad weather. So now Verizon and AT&T are responding. Plus, a woman pushed to her death off the subway platform in front of the train. Another young woman stabbed to death by a stranger inside a furniture store. The deadly and random attacks plaguing major cities on both coasts of the U.S. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're starting off with our health lead free tests for everyone with the catch. Today, the White House quietly launched its beta version website for free at-home rapid tests. Just go to covidtest.gov. But tough luck if you're a family of five. There's a limit of four per household. Do not expect to see them on your doorstop doorstep tomorrow, like an Amazon Prime delivery. They will start shipping out at the end of the month. Still, it's worth getting your name on the list because as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, COVID cases are still skyrocketing in most of the United States, and it is best to have a test on hand in case you happen to be one of the nearly 700,000 new cases per week. One in five Americans have now had COVID-19. More than 66 million confirmed cases and counting. In reality, says the CDC, it's probably way more, like four times more. The Omicron variant is now spreading this virus like never before. Is this the beginning of the end for this pandemic? It is an open question as to whether or not Omicron is going to be the live virus vaccination that everyone is hoping for because you have such a great deal of variability with new variants emerging. There's a good likelihood we're going to see another serious COVID wave of a new variant, TBD, to be determined that's going to start in the summer. Infections right now unquestionably falling in parts of the country. Green is good. New York is green. We are winning. We are winning. And we are going to win. But not yet. More than 100 patients left waiting for an ICU bed in Oklahoma City Monday morning. Our caregivers are still strong, according to an open letter penned by four healthcare bosses in the city. But they are exhausted. Even these heroes can't keep up much longer. If we have to stop the happy talk about Omicron, this is still a very serious pathogen, especially in light of the fact that so much of our healthcare workforce is getting knocked out at home with COVID. I had a 103 degree fever every night. Serious pathogen. ESPN Stephen A. Smith spent New Year's in the hospital with COVID. And they told me, had I not been vaccinated, I wouldn't be here. Another massive issue. Hundreds of schools remain closed by the Omicron wave. We have failed our children 
Throughout this entire pandemic, we have not prioritized our kids, and now we're seeing the effect. Researchers just published their review of 36 studies on the impact on kids of such school closures in 2020 in 11 countries, with almost all studies documenting poorer mental health and well-being. Now, Jake, you mentioned that the beta version is up of that website where you can now order yourself some free rapid tests. One of my colleagues just told me in my ear she has done it already and the whole process took less than a minute. So, so far, so good. The full site rolls out, we're told, mid-morning tomorrow. Meantime, we are still waiting for the federal government to tell us how and when they're going to ship out all those great masks that they promised. Jake. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner. Dr. Reiner, the White House quietly rolled out its free at-home testing site today. There's a limit of four per household, uh, and it will take a couple weeks before the, uh, the uh, tests get to people's doorsteps. Will this effort ultimately make any sort of dent in the pandemic? Well, maybe not for this uh, big uh, Omicron surge, but going forward, yes, I think tests are critical uh, uh, are a critical tool to help us get back to normal. Uh, it's, it's how we are going to be able to understand whether that tickle in your throat is just a tickle in your throat or whether it's, it's uh, COVID and whether you need to stay home. Uh, it's a tool to allow you to go visit your friends on Saturday night, which is what we and our friends did before we met uh, this past weekend. So I think it's going to be critical to have tested in every home uh, it would have been wonderful for us to have had this months ago, but here we are, and I'm glad the administration is doing is doing this. But for most people, they won't be able to get uh, uh, these tests until uh, beginning of February, and I encourage everyone to go on the website uh, this week and order some to have in your house. Dr. Fauci was asked if the Omicron variant could be the last big spike. Take a listen. When you talk about whether or not Omicron because it's a highly transmissible, but apparently not as pathogenic, for example, as Delta. I would hope that that's the case, but that would only be the case if we don't get another variant that eludes the immune response to the prior variant. So it seems as though Fauci is saying there's no way to predict the course of this virus, but there is some hope that perhaps it's winding down to an endemic stage where, where we just learn to live with it. Uh, do you feel the same way? Uh, I do. And, and basically what Dr. Fauci is saying is that since this uh, variant is so contagious and is infecting so many uh, people uh, per day, probably well more than a quarter of a million people in this country a day are being infected. Uh, 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 in fact, excuse me, like a, well over a million people per day are being infected with, with this with this variant, that it, it is uh, basically acting like a live uh, virus vaccine, like uh, uh, MMR and chickenpox uh, vaccines, and is basically vaccinating uh, the country. Now, how durable that will be it has yet to be seen. And as uh, Dr. Fauci said, it will all depend on whether another variant uh, out competes Omicron and, and takes its place later this spring or early summer. You say it's serving uh, as a way of va- vaccinating, but I mean, I, I know you mean for the for the 99% of the people who, who survive it and then get antibodies, but there is also, you know, thousand, more than a thousand people uh, a day who are dying from it and there's long COVID. I just want to make sure that 
our viewers don't. Oh, oh don't, don't get me. No, don't yeah. get me. No, don't get me wrong. No, I, I am doing everything in my power to prevent uh, myself from getting this infection in my family and my patients and everyone I care about and everyone in this country. This virus is to be avoided at all costs, at every cost. But what Dr. Fauci was saying, basically, is that this virus, um, which appears to be a little lower in severity than Delta, mean easier to survive, is infecting an enormous number of people, and it is providing a level of immunity to a lot of people. So that's what uh, Dr. Fauci right. was saying. By no means do I, do I think that people should just let it rip and just go ahead and get this virus and get it over with. 2,000 people are dying per day. Yeah. This is to be avoided. And people I know who, who have had it in the last few weeks are, uh, get mad when anybody uses the term less severe or mild. They say it's, it just, it's a wallop, although they are surviving it. Miserable. They're, they're vaccinated. Miserable is the word yeah. they use. An article in The Atlantic by Oxford, Oxford professor Jonathan Wolf discusses the, the social contract of living with this ongoing virus. Quote, just as you can drive carefully, you can live carefully during a pandemic wave. If the price of safety is to never go to a bar, restaurant, sports event, or performance again, most will agree that we've got the balance disastrously wrong. We need to trade off survival against boredom. We cannot expect people to indefinitely forego life's pleasures because a domino effect will lead to another sick person in the hospital. Uh, Dr. Reiner, do you agree? And, and how do you mitigate everyday risks in your life? Well, I do think we have a so social contract uh, with our families and our communities and our friends and our co-workers to protect them. And we make decisions in this life uh, that should place our community, you know, uh, very high in, in our decision making. So for that reason, people should be vaccinated to lower their risk of getting and transmitting this virus. For that reason, people should be masking in crowds to prevent themselves from either acquiring it or trans transmitting it. Uh, I think about this every single day when I go to work. I don't want to get my coworkers infected. Uh, I treasure them. I don't want to bring a virus home to my family. Right. Who I love deeply. And so like this weekend, as I said earlier, we, we did want to get out of our house and have dinner with friends. We went over to their home. My wife and I used rapid tests a half hour before we went there. We were both negative. Our friends both tested at home uh, around the same time. All four of us were negative. We had a lovely dinner. That's part of the contract. Yep. Why would I go there and endanger, and endanger them? Exactly. Dr. Reiner, thanks so much. Appreciate right. it. He has a dream, but right. President Biden's push for election reform is being deferred by reluctant Democrats and Republicans in lockstep. And we're following breaking news that impacts every flight in the United States. Airlines claiming 5G cell towers could lead to thousands of flight cancellations because of safety concerns. And now some international airlines are suspending flights to the U.S. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead. And in just minutes, Senate Democrats are set to meet on Capitol Hill with another key Biden priority on the verge of failure. It will be a vote on an election reform bill, all but guaranteed to, to fail tomorrow with zero Republicans on board and a select few Democrats unwilling to scrap the 60-vote filibuster to get that bill across the finish line. We're covering this from both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. Jeff Zeleny is at the White House. Jessica Dean is on Capitol Hill. Jessica, if this vote is basically guaranteed to fail, what is the point of this Senate Democratic meeting tonight? 
It's a good question, Jake, and they have to come together so they can figure out actual next steps. At this point, we don't know what Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is going to do after this vote ultimately goes down on the Senate floor. He has threatened to try to make rules changes to the filibuster in order to push forward. But what is important to remember, and we've talked about this a lot, is that Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are against any rules changes that don't have bipartisan support. And the fact remains that zero, exactly zero Republicans are on board with making changes to the filibuster. So we're expecting them to meet tonight as a caucus and go through some of this, try to get on the same page in terms of uh, what the next steps will be. But the outcome, Jake, at this point uh, looks to be the same as we've always believed it to be, which is that these bills will fail and there will not be changes uh, to the filibuster. And Jeff, uh, the daughter-in-law of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Andrea Waters King, told Politico, quote, what we've seen with President Biden is what happens when he puts his full force and power behind an issue like infrastructure. What we want to see is that same power and passion being put behind voting rights, unquote. Um, I don't know that that's a fair comparison, but uh, what is the White House saying today about this likely failure? Well, Jake, the White House is acutely aware of the uphill battle here. And of course, infrastructure is different. There were 17 Republicans in the Senate who supported that at the end of the day. But the point is that the base, the Democratic activists and the core of the party want to see something done. That is why the president and vice president are going all out on this, all in on this to make the case, even though they know it's going to fail. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki explained it like this. I would say in terms of voting rights, um, his view is that um, it's never a good idea not to shoot for the moon with what your proposals are and what you're fighting for. Uh, and the alternative is to fight for nothing and to fight for nothing hard. And that uh, sometimes, oftentimes, as you know, you've covered a couple of administrations, you don't get everything done in the first year. And of course, that is clear. Uh, presidents do not get everything done in the first year. The question is, how much time is the president going to spend on this in the second year? He also has the second part of his economic agenda still looming out there. So that will be a decision the president has to make later this week. So, Jessica, let's assume that this all happens the way we expect it will um, and it fails. Is there any part uh, of either of these election reform bills that Republicans might be able to support in a standalone bill. Uh, could parts of this legislation, legislation still pass if there were some effort to, to come up with a bipartisan compromise, or is it just Republicans are not interested in this issue? It's the latter. The Republicans simply aren't interested, uh, with the exception of Lisa Murkowski, who has tried to work on a bipartisan basis here. But uh, from Republican leadership with Mitch McConnell all the way down, Jake, they've really unilaterally pretty much said, uh, we're not interested in any sort of uh, election reforms. Uh, Republicans truly believing this is a state's issue and they want to keep it that way. One thing worth keeping our eye on is changes to the Electoral Count Act, which it doesn't have to do necessarily with voting. It comes after the results happened, but it was at the center of what happened in 2020 and at the at the center of president, former President Trump's efforts to overturn the election election results uh, with with and, and it really deals with how Congress validates those results. Uh, there has been some bipartisan movement on that. We heard from Senator Mitt Romney over the weekend that, that there's a group of 12 bipartisan group of 12 senators working on something like this. So once the temperatures cool on this, they could move toward that. But in terms of the actual uh, issues that are in these bills currently, it does not appear like that's going to get any traction even outside of these bigger bills. And quickly, Jeff, uh, President Biden is set to hold a news conference tomorrow as he ends his first year in office. I'll bring you, you that, uh, viewers, uh, tomorrow. What is the White House plan for holding this event on the heels of a slew of bad news and horrific headlines for, for Biden? 
Well, Jake, look, the timing certainly is not great for the president, but perhaps it's a metaphor or so to try and turn the page, restore a sense of confidence in his spirit and competence in his administration. Now, the president does not hold many news conferences, as we well know, so he'll be doing this. And, you know, the, the fact that he's doing that in and its, um, of itself is a bit of a news event. But again, trying to uh, reset things. Sometimes you have to get the bad out of the way before you can try and make way to the next chapter. That, of course, is just their hope here at the White House, Jake. And that press conference is tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can watch it here at CNN. Jessica Dean, Jeff Zeleny, thanks to both of you. Houses of worship, now possible targets of terror. What you need to know about the latest FBI warnings following that Texas synagogue siege. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security are warning faith communities of potential more violence to come. They say they will likely continue to be targeted, these faith communities, by domestic and foreign extremists. This disturbing report comes as the Jewish community is reeling from a hostage standoff at a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, which is outside Dallas. The suspect in that incident, a British national with extremist Islamist views, is now dead. But as CNN's Ed Lavandera reports, investigators have now turned their attention to the UK to find out more about what the FBI is calling a terrorism-related attack. That is the ranting by Malik Faisal Akram, captured on the Congregation Beth Israel live stream when he took four people hostage Saturday morning. The family of the 44-year-old hostage taker says he suffered from mental health issues. I die. A United Kingdom official tells CNN the British national was known to the UK security services. He was the subject of a brief investigation in 2020. The official says the investigation was closed when authorities determined Akram to no longer be a threat. But after traveling to the United States in late December, Akram made his way into the Colleyville Synagogue with a handgun. He held Rabbi Charlie Citrone Walker and three others hostage while demanding the release of Afia Siddiqui, who was convicted of attempted murder, among other charges, and is in a Texas federal prison. Jeffrey Cohen was one of the four hostages. He detailed the chilling account of the final hour of the hostage standoff. He even said that... I'm going to put a bullet in each of each of you, get down on your knees, at which point I glared at him. I raised up in my seat, kind of like I'm doing now. I may have shaked my head like that, but I, I glared at him and I mouthed no. I want to make it clear two things. Um, we were not released. We were not rescued. Okay. We escaped. Hallelujah. The congregation Beth Israel came together Monday night for a healing service as the FBI and Homeland Security officials sent a letter warning faith-based communities have and will likely continue to be targets of violence by both domestic violent extremists and those inspired by foreign terrorists. Thank God. Thank God. In front of his congregation where hundreds turned out, Rabbi Charlie Citrone Walker thank the outpouring of support he's received from around the world. It could have been so much worse, and I am overflowing. Truly overflowing with gratitude. And I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for your presence here tonight. 
And Jake, this afternoon we've also learned that the hostage taker about 10 days ago showed up at the Islamic Center of Irving, which is just several miles away from the synagogue here in Colleyville. We were told by a spokesperson for the Islamic Center uh, that the suspect was asking for a place to stay. He was turned away, then became hostile, told the people there at the Islamic Center that they were going to hell. Then he showed up the next day acting very nice. That led people there to believe that he was just not a stable person. Jake? Ed Lavendera, thanks so much. Let's discuss this with uh, CNN legal analyst and former Justice Department counterterrorism attorney Kerry Cordero. Kerry, this investigation has gone international. CNN has learned that the suspect was known to British security services, had been the subject of an investigation in 2020, yet he was able to clear vetting and legally arrive in the U.S. Is this a screening failure by the U.S.? Well, I think, Jake, that's going to be one of the big questions um, that U.S. investigators are going to have to evaluate. We have systems in place, primarily the entire infrastructure that was put in place in the post-9-11 era. We have a National Counterterrorism Center, a terrorist screening center that's run by the FBI, a National Vetting Center run by the Department of Homeland Security. And these are the institutions that are supposed to catch things like this. So I think that actually absolutely will be part of the review. It's one of the big questions that I have in terms of how this individual was uh, permitted to enter the United States. British uh, counterterrorism police say that they have arrested two teenagers in connection with this attack on the Texas synagogue. What sorts of clues are investigators looking for to determine whether the suspect acted in coordination with others? Right. So again, one question is, has it, how did he get into the United States? This Another question is, is was he acting alone or was this part of some broader uh, plot or coordinated effort amongst a small group of individuals? So if they have taken into custody individuals to ask questions, that's what they're going to be trying to understand. Was this a lone individual and they're just trying to understand who he is and his activities and what would have gone into his thinking, his motivations? Or are they trying to understand if these under, other individuals were involved or if it's part of something broader? Because all of that will be relevant as to what future warnings and what future investigations uh, both the FBI and international partners do or do not need to take. So this domestic terrorist uh, said that he was holding individuals hostage until uh, Aifa, or, uh, Aifa Siddiqui, I think is her name, uh, was free. That's a big cause among extremist Islamists throughout the world, freeing her. Um, but I read a, an op-ed in Newsweek today that faulted the Council uh, on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, for taking up uh, Aifa Siddiqui's cause. CARE also criticized Zionist synagogues, saying that they're not friends of Muslims. And then this, this op-ed said, CARE, in a, in a way, is responsible for, for at least feeding the beast that inspired this, this hostage taker. Do you agree? Well, so to, to be clear, Afia Siddiqui is not a political prisoner. She is not a victim. What she is is a convicted terrorist after a federal trial uh, in Manhattan, convicted and sentenced uh, according to U.S. federal law uh, because she uh, was being investigated by U.S. investigators in Afghanistan and obtained their weapon and assaulted them. So she is not a political prisoner. What, ha what she has become is amongst a network of international terrorists and their supporters, she has become a cause celeb. And CARE is one of the organizations in the United States that has taken up her cause. Also a cause taken up by the Pakistani government itself, 
which has lobbied on her behalf for her transfer to Pakistan. So CARE has advocated for her release, uh, including events that took place just this fall, including last month. And so I do think that there is a valid public dialogue uh, regarding the continuation of what is really a um, unfounded assertion that she is somehow not a legitimate uh, detainee or a, a legitimate person who is in federal custody. Yeah. Oh, we should note, of course, that CARE has condemned the attack on the synagogue and and uh, and, has, and so has Siddiqui, uh, apparently. Carrie Cordero, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Airlines say that 5G internet, internet connection could make it hard for planes to land in bad weather. Now some countries are suspending flights to the U.S. because they're concerned about the rollout. Buckle your seatbelt. Stay right there. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you in our tech lead after a terrifying warning. AT&T and Verizon are now delaying the activation of 5G towers near some airport runways, the, the activation that was set for tomorrow. And now some international airlines will not fly to the United States because they are also worried about the rollout. Major airlines in the U.S. claim thousands of flights could be grounded because when the 5G towers are placed near runways, they say, the 5G signals could potentially interfere with key safety equipment that pilots rely on when they take off and land in inclement weather. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins us now. Pete, AT&T is our parent company. We should note AT&T is pointing the finger at the FAA for this delay. That's right, Jake. You know, airlines in the aviation industry are getting what they want, at least for now. But it's not coming without a harsh message from the telecom industry, which says that the FAA simply had a lot of time to deal with this. Essentially, a two-year runway is what they say airlines could have dealt with and the FAA and the aviation industry could have dealt with with this 5G rollout, which is already delayed by two weeks once the new deadline was to be tomorrow. Just look at the statement from AT&T. It says, we are frustrated by the FAA's inability to do what nearly 40 countries have done, which is to safely deploy 5G technology without disrupting aviation services and we urge it to do so in a timely manner. Really begs the question here about who is to blame. Was it the FAA dragging its feet or the FCC, which allowed this 5G radio spectrum to be used in a way that airlines say will interfere with critical systems on board planes? Wondering if Congress will get involved here, Jake. The rollouts become so concerning, some international airlines are now suspending some flights to the U.S. That's right. Emirates has suspended nine flights to the U.S. It's changing planes on three other flights, ANA, Air Japan, also uh, Air India. We also received a message today from American Airlines, which it sent to its employees, which said there could be an innumerable amount of delays and cancellations at that airline if 5G was allowed to deploy as initially planned. It couldn't even pinpoint exactly how many problems this would cause, although airlines up and down have said this would be a huge issue, Jake. Let's back up, Pete. Why is 5G high-speed internet potentially dangerous when it's closed to airports? The issue here is the radio spectrum. It is called the C-band. And what happens is the 5G network is so close on that radio frequency spectrum to what are called radar altimeters. Those are very sensitive instruments on board commercial airliners, on cargo planes, 
on helicopters, particularly important for what for commercial airliners because it is used, sends a radio beam down to the ground and then back up to the airplane to get a really hyper-accurate reading of how high the plane is above the ground, which is used in critical phases of flight, especially when the plane is very low to the ground, when the visibility is the least. So this is a real problem, the airlines say. In fact, United CEO Scott Kirby called it the number one safety issue for the airline and that it will not compromise on that. The airlines are warning this could create enormous scheduling problems as airlines still try to catch up from Christmas week after weeks of more than a thousand cancellations a day. What do the airlines want done long term here? Essentially what they want is what some other countries have done, which is a buffer zone. They want these 5G cell towers that are near those critical zones near runways, essentially a two-mile buffer where those towers are turned off or there could not possibly be interference. The airlines say they're not outright against 5G in general. They just don't want it to interfere with their planes, don't want it to interfere with flights. They say on a typical day, this could lead to a thousand delays, diversions, and cancellations, Jake. All right, Pete Montin, thanks so much. And our world lead, North Korea testing missiles at an alarming rate, as CNN's Ivan Watson reports for us now. The frequency is sending shockwaves throughout the region. Patriotic declarations on North Korean state television. Announcements of fresh missile launches. North Korea has launched a salvo of six ballistic missiles in less than two weeks. On January 5th, what Pyongyang calls a hypersonic missile, another hypersonic missile on January 11th, two ballistic missiles fired from a train on January 14th, and two tactical guided missiles fired early Monday morning. Weapons tests that appear to be part of a plan laid out by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un more than a year ago. Fundamentally, Kim Jong-un has basically ordered his people uh, to make the type of weapons that he thinks will make North Korea become a very advanced nuclear power. Weapons experts say some of this month's launches didn't break any new ground. But North Korea also fired this new hypersonic missile, which it first revealed to the public last year. And the South Korean military confirmed it flew at 10 times the speed of sound. What North Korea is calling a hypersonic missile is really a ballistic missile at the base when it launches. And then on the top, it has a maneuverable warhead, which means it can um, move in a way that is unexpected. This type of missile poses a new potential threat to the U.S. and its allies in Asia. They're able to launch a missile in one direction and essentially turn a corner, which makes it very difficult for Uh, radar systems and interceptors to track it. The latest missile launches, a reminder of the flurry of missile tests North Korea conducted back in 2017. They sparked a war of words between Pyongyang and then-President Donald Trump. Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. Eventually, Trump and Kim staged three historic face-to-face meetings and a lot of letter writing. We've had, uh, what, you know, during Trump administration, by by my count, 27 letters exchanged between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Kim Jong-un, you know, wants that kind of attention. Former U.S. diplomat Joseph Yoon advises the Biden administration to try harder to engage with the North Korean regime. Otherwise, we're going to return to the bad old days 
of 2017, which is really a, a crisis atmosphere. So far, Pyongyang has rejected multiple U.S. requests for talks. In the meantime, the Biden administration imposed sanctions for the first time last week in response to North Korean missile launches, targeting North Korean and Russian nationals, as well as a Russian company accused of helping Pyongyang's weapons program. North Korea accused Washington of gangster-like logic and launched two missiles the very same day. Clearly, the North Korean government does not want to be ignored. Jake, there's another important factor here, and that is that North Korea, never a wealthy country, has taken a beating economically recently. Uh, the government has even acknowledged problems with food supplies, in part due to heavy flooding that have affected uh, crop yields. It's also almost completely cut itself off from the outside world and any trade due to trying to keep the coronavirus outside of its borders. Uh, despite these hardships, the government, Kim Jong-un, has made it clear that the missile technology, the weapons program, merits uh, investments of scarce money and resources, even as the population appears to suffer. All right, Ivan Watson, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Gotham City sending out the bat signal. New Yorkers terrified over, over a recent spate of violent crime. That's next. In our national lead, growing fears about big city crime. Today, New York City Mayor Eric Adams admitted New Yorkers and tourists are worried about safety in the subway system, changing his tune after first trying to reassure his constituents about the subway safety after a homeless man pushed an innocent 40-year-old woman in front of a train over the weekend, killing her. Across the country in Los Angeles, homeless men are being blamed in a pair of unrelated random attacks last week that killed a 24-year-old college student working in a furniture store and a 70-year-old nurse waiting at a bus stop. CNN's Athena Jones takes a look for, look for us now at the growing climate of fear that crime in the city, any city, but especially New York City, is out of control. A horrific crime in the heart of New York City. A 40-year-old woman died after being pushed onto the tracks of an oncoming subway train Saturday. Police arresting a homeless man they said has a criminal background and a record of emotionally disturbed encounters. The random killing capturing many New Yorkers' fears. We're going to make sure New Yorkers feel safe in our subway system, and they don't feel that way now. The latest shocking crime in the city. Last week, a 19-year-old fast food worker fatally shot during a botched robbery. So help me God! Hours after being sworn in January 1st, Mayor Eric Adams addressed police after an off-duty officer was hit by a bullet while sleeping in his car. This is not going to be a city of disorder. Violence rose last year in cities across the nation. In New York, early into the year, homicides are down. But complaints for rape are up nearly 16 percent. Robberies up more than 25 percent. People are afraid to walk in the streets. Crime is happening. The subway's a disaster. He's got a big job ahead of him. The disturbing trend, a major challenge facing Adams, who ran on a promise of safer streets and subways, and now must deliver, while balancing reformers' demands for more equitable policing and providing social services. Our recovery is dependent on the public safety in this city and in this subway system. We can do that with the right balance, a balance of safety and a balance of proactively giving people the assistance they need when they're in mental health crisis. 
Adams has beefed up police presence in the subways and wants to bring back a controversial plainclothes unit of well-trained officers to rein in violence and get illegal guns off the streets. The program, which ended in 2020, was involved in many of the city's most notorious police shootings. Adams says this time will be different. I know how to do it right because I fought against what was being done wrong. He is also calling for greater accountability for police to help rebuild trust with the communities they serve. Justice and public safety go together. And he's already facing that balancing act between criminal justice reform and ensuring safety. His newly appointed police commissioner, Keyshawn Sewell, the first woman to lead the nation's largest police force, raising serious concerns after the Manhattan district attorney argued against prosecuting lesser crimes. I respect uh, that the DA must make the determination of prosecuting the right cases. My job is to keep the city safe. The mayor has faced questions in recent days for putting his brother, also a former NYPD officer, in charge of mayoral security. Adam says his brother is the best person for the job. The city's conflict of interest board is evaluating the appointment, and Adam says he'll abide by its decision. Jake? All right, Athena Jones in New York for us. Thank you so much. We have some breaking news for you in our world lead. CNN just got exclusive access to a Ukrainian military briefing, and they believe Russia is almost ready for its next move. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it has not happened since Bill Clinton was in the Oval Office. New polling lays out a dramatic shift in what political party Americans identify with, and this news might spell trouble for Democrats come midterms. Plus, it's been almost one year since President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris were sworn into office. We'll take a look at the ups and downs of their first year in the White House and leading this hour with breaking news. CNN has just gotten a look at the Ukrainian military's assessment of just what Russia is doing. This, as CNN also learns, the Biden administration is weighing new options to help Ukraine protect itself, such as providing more military equipment. Some officials who have seen the latest intelligence tell CNN that there is evidence Russia is planning to take Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and overthrow Ukraine's government. While the world is on edge waiting to see what Vladimir Putin will do, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki hinted today at the explosive nature of the situation. We believe we're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack on Ukraine. Uh, I would say that's more stark than we have been. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is en route right now to Ukraine as the U.S. weighs its next move to counter Russia's aggression. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Kiev ahead of Blinken's arrival. This is the actual video, complete with soundtrack, put out by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. Being fired to the beat, Javelin anti-tank missiles supplied by the U.S. as part of its growing military support. It's these kinds of weapons Ukraine hopes will help stop another Russian invasion. And it wants more. Cue a flurry of diplomatic fist bumps and grand promises of U.S. support. On Wednesday, Secretary of State Blinken visits Kiev. But earlier this week, a congressional delegation was here. I think Vladimir Putin has made the biggest mistake of his career. Vowing more tough action in Washington against Russian aggression. We will impose crippling economic sanctions, but more important, we will give the people of Ukraine the arms, 
lethal arms they need to defend their lives and livelihoods. It certainly doesn't look deterred. These are the latest images of Russia's live fire military exercises near its border, where the latest Ukrainian defense intelligence assessment obtained exclusively by CNN says Russia has almost completed its military buildup. The assessment says there are now more than 127,000 Russian troops poised to invade, including Russian infantry units seen here practicing urban warfare, the kind that may play a major role if any potentially messy incursion into Ukraine is ever ordered. Sources in rebel-controlled eastern areas of the country tell CNN training has also been ramped up there with a significant increase of rebel fighters and heavy weaponry on the front lines. The new Ukrainian intelligence assessment says Russia supports more than 35,000 rebels and has about 3,000 of its own military based in rebel territory. Moscow denies having any forces there and continues to insist it has no plans either to invade. We do not threaten anyone, but we hear threats against us. I hope all of this only reflects emotions within the camp of Western countries. We will be guided by concrete steps and deeds. But those deeds and steps seem to point to escalation. These are new images showing troops from Russia and its ally Belarus preparing for joint exercises near Ukraine's northern border. It may be just a distraction, but as Russia continues to mass forces, Ukrainian intelligence says it now sees this region as a full-fledged Russian theatre of operation. In other words, another dangerous potential front line. Well, Jake, well, that stark warning from Ukrainian intelligence coming as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Kiev to show U.S. support for the country at this time and to meet the leadership. But frankly, Jake, the Ukrainians want more than just words from Washington. They want military support to help them fight what they regard as an impending Russian threat. All right, Matthew Tance in uh, Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN White House reporter Natasha Bertrand. Natasha. A source tells you that the Biden administration is considering maybe sending Ukraine more military equipment in case Russia invades. How extensive would that aid be? How close is the president to a decision on whether or not to send it? Well, these conversations are still at the relatively preliminary level, and it's coming as the administration becomes increasingly pessimistic about Vladimir Putin's intentions here. They see an invasion as increasingly likely, as Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said earlier today. They are at a moment closer than they have been, really, to being able to launch an attack at virtually any time. And so what the administration is thinking about now is less how to deter an invasion by bolstering Ukrainian military forces there, and more how to sustain a, a resistance campaign essentially, if Russia were to invade and were to occupy large swaths of territory of Ukraine. They essentially want to raise the costs uh, to make it very uh, difficult for Vladimir Putin to make a decision about whether to invade because of how hard it will be for him to hold on to the country. Um, now, it remains to be seen whether or not President Biden's uh, commitment to not putting U.S. forces on the ground there in the event that a war erupts holds. Uh, special operations forces are obviously kind of circling in and out of Ukraine, and the CIA may actually uh, be instrumental in uh, maintaining that kind of resistance force, uh, helping the Ukrainians put up that fight, essentially, uh, if a war does erupt, Jake. 
All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's turn now to Gary Kasparov, the world-renowned chess master and most recently a vocal critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, good to see you again. I want to play again what we heard today from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We believe we're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack on Ukraine. Uh, I would say that's more stark than we have been. This wasn't an off-the-cuff remark. She's, she's reading from a document. This wasn't a gaffe. It wasn't a mistake. Saki, in fact, made that comment twice today. What do you, what do you make of that uh, coming from the White House? Uh, I just want to say that, you know, I'm not a recent critic of Vladimir Putin. My first article pointing at the danger coming from KGB guy running Russia was dated by January 4th, 2001, in my Wall Street Journal article. And actually, 15 years ago, in February 2007, Putin himself told about his plans to return to spheres of uh, power, just to control, you know, the former Soviet, uh, Soviet republics and hell with international law. And it took four U.S. administrations to actually read this message because now he's messing up troops. And it is very serious. It's more than serious. Uh, what we're discussing now, I heard these words and words, crippling sanctions. It's too little. I hope it's not too late. Because let's not forget, President Biden had three talks with Vladimir Putin, one in person and two on, 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 on a video on Zoom. And every time we were told that he made an ultimatum, he warned Putin. Putin didn't hear mm -hmm. the, the message or it was not the right message to, to deter Putin. And uh, right now, there are too many words. And uh, speaking about Ukraine receiving American military assistance after invasion, it sounds odd to me because if Russian troops enter Kiev, who cares you know, what U.S. is going to send to Ukraine? Yeah, I only, I, fair enough. I only met more recently uh, in terms of uh, since you became world famous as a chess master, that's all. But I take your point. You've been criticizing mm -hmm. him for, uh, for a generation. From Natasha's reporting, we're hearing that the U.S. might send Ukraine's army some more military equipment, including ammunition, mortars, javelin, anti-tank missiles. NATO allies might send anti-aircraft missile systems. Um, will that help? Do you think this all signals an, an invasion is def definitely imminent? Uh, look, it's, it, everything will help. But let's not forget, uh, the day before yesterday, a German uh, foreign minister, she was in Kiev, and she again repeated German position not to sell lethal weapon to Ukraine. Uh, and let's not forget, Germany is, is one of the largest uh, arm uh, uh, sales, uh, sales uh, country in, 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 in the world. So it, again, words, promises, crippling sanctions, but I do not see anything in paper. I do not see any document that will will tell Vladimir Putin beyond any doubts that the cost of invasion of Ukraine will be too high. And uh, if he doesn't believe that the cost will be too high, so his experience tells him that it's o o only lip service. He invaded the Republic of Georgia in 2008. He uh, helped Bashar al-Assad. He propped up Maduro regime. And of course, he invaded Ukraine in 2014. So far, nothing happened. Why does he, uh, uh, does he believe uh, these words today? So Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed to Ukraine right now to meet with the Ukrainian president. Just yesterday, a bipartisan delegation of seven U.S. senators also met with Ukrainian President Zelensky. The senators say they stress that the U.S. is standing with Ukraine and its sovereignty. How effective can all these meetings and, and support be if ultimately what happens next comes oh, down it, to Ukraine it's, and its standoff with Russia? It's better than it used to be, but let's not forget, you know, the Russian propaganda for years has been steadily denying Ukrainian sovereignty. Ukraine is, is, is a failed state. It doesn't have rights to exist. 
And in the last few days, they stepped up their, their, their attacks on Ukraine, talking even about using nukes if anybody interferes with Russia's sacred right to take control of, the, of this territory. Yeah, of course, it's, it's, it's talk. It's, you may say it's hot air, but propaganda machine in Russia under full control of Kremlin. And it seems that they're stepping up not only military preparation, but also propaganda uh, campaign to um, back up the, uh, the forthcoming invasion. I'm not sure the decision has been made yet, but it's very, very serious. And unless Putin recognizes that this time the response will be too costly for him to bear, I, I'm, I'm waiting. I, I, I would expect the worst. And what would that be? What would be too costly for him to bear that the U.S. and NATO could warn Putin about that would actually have an effect? Now, crippling uh, 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 economic sanctions that will include, you know, just cutting Nord Stream 2, basically cutting Russian gas supply to Europe, cutting Russia out of SWIFT and going after Putin's money, after Russian oligarchs that placed the immense fortune uh, all, over, all over the free world, from Baltic states to San Francisco. So also you have to put it in paper. It has to be uh, some form of a law just, you know, supported by, by uh, mm, mm, uh, Congress, by Senate. Uh, administration has to make it very clear that it would push European allies because there's very little appetite. Germany is still, you know, hesitant about, about its position. Uh, uh, um, in case of, of, of all-out war uh, regarding uh, Nord Stream 2, because for 20 years, uh, Europe did absolutely nothing to diminish its dependence on, on Russian gas. And even after Crimea, uh, Crimea's annexation, Germany almost doubled the amount of Russian gas it has been buying. Gary Kasparov, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Are we turning a COVID corner? Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to help diagnose how we can live with COVID. Then a massive volcanic eruption launches a tsunami that wipes out all of the houses on one island. Stay with us. In our health lead, a desperate plea from four of the biggest hospital systems in the state of Oklahoma, writing an open letter to the public saying there are zero ICU beds left. They're short hundreds of hospital staff. And on top of all that, Violence against healthcare workers is at a, quote, all-time high. The hospital's warning, quote, soon you or a loved one may need us for life-saving care, whether for a stroke, emergency appendectomy, or trauma from a car accident, and we might not be able to help, unquote. A stark warning. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, as of Monday, there were more than 100 patients in the state of Oklahoma in need of a hospital bed that could not get one. We're starting to see cases come down in places like New York? When will places like Oklahoma start to feel some relief? Well, you know, this, uh, what typically happens is you see these waves around the country. So you are seeing cases come down in New York and in D.C. and other places as well. And that reflects what's even been seen around the world in, in the U.K. and South Africa. But let me show you when it comes to hospitalizations in particular in Oklahoma and look what's happening in the United States. Typically, uh, Oklahoma sort of preceded the United States sort of waves uh, here, you know, you see it's just chasing the United States a, a little bit, and it's still on its way up. If you look at the model specifically, they say probably end of the month before you have sort of a peak uh, when it comes to hospitalizations in places like Oklahoma. It's a bit of a moving target, but then obviously, Jake, it's a few weeks after that before the numbers really come down to a more manageable level. I should also point out just vaccination rates. You know, you look at vaccination rates in New York, uh, and you see where the numbers have sort of come down versus Oklahoma. 
73% versus 54% in Oklahoma. The country as a whole is just almost right in the middle there, Jake, around 63, 64%. So, you know, we'll see, but it sounds like a few more weeks where it's going to be pretty tough there. The White House website for ordering free at-home tests is up. Uh, I've ordered one. Uh, What should people know? Well, first of all, this was a bit of a surprise because the website was supposed to go up tomorrow. But what we've heard uh, is that this is sort of the the beta phase. They wanted to put it up a day early and see if they could work out some kinks. You're able to order them. A lot of people have already ordered them. Some people have run into problems and they're getting an email that basically says check in tomorrow when we're actually fully up to try and work out some of those kinks. I don't know what your message, Jake, that you got, but typically what people are hearing is that by the end of January, these tests should start going out and you, you put your email and you can sort of track it along. A lot of people ordering, Jake. This is half of the, this is half of the uh, internet traffic for the government in total right now is the ordering of these tests. So a lot of people in on it. 500 million of these are expected to go out over the next 60 days. So, you know, we'll see how that goes, but this is obviously a big endeavor. Do you recommend that everyone order the tests now just to have them on hand, even if they're not feeling any symptoms right now? Do do these tests expire? Some of them do expire. They do have a shelf life and it's different for different tests. So you should certainly look at the box, but it's usually months to a year in terms of shelf life. Yes, is the answer to the question that you asked. I I think people should order them now. You You can get a sense of how hard they may be when you need them. Um, hopefully, you know, the numbers continue to go down as we're talking about and the demand for these sort of eases up a bit. But having them on hand, even, you know, if uh, uh, there's another surge or something would certainly be helpful. And again, if you've had an exposure to somebody to be able to test yourself and know if you, in fact, are contagious as well is, is important to slowing down the spread of this pandemic. Uh, a compilation of 36 studies uh, across 11 different countries showed the impact of closing schools on children, uh, finding increased anxiety, depression, higher screen time, not as much exercise. In the U.S., kids account for less than 0.2%, 0.2% of the coronavirus deaths. What would you say to a school administrator thinking about going back to remote learning? Well, I would say we've, we've learned a lot over the last couple of years. In the beginning, when we weren't sure exactly how this virus would behave, who would be most likely affected by this, Uh, I think there was a lot of confusion. If you add into that, that we were sort of flying blind because there wasn't enough testing, uh, it it was tough to make the case that kids should be in school at that point. But I think by the fall of 2020, Jake, certainly by the end of 2020, it was pretty clear. You and I did a town hall on this. There were big studies that came out, not just from around the world, but even here in the United States, showing that schools could open safely if you did a few things, including masking, improving ventilation, having testing, those things make a big difference. We obviously have the vaccines now as well. So I, you know, I can understand the concern, but I think we're basically you know, close to two years or a year and a half at least of knowledge that schools can, can open safely. I, I realize that it's still frightening for, for some people. And you know, 0.2% is still a, a small number, but you know, of a huge overall deaths number. If this was something that just affected kids, and I told you, you know, close to 5,000 kids are in the hospital, hundreds of kids have died, as a country, we would have done everything we can to try and drop those numbers. Now we know how to keep kids safe. And arguably, Jake, even as we discussed in the town hall more than a year ago, schools could be some of the safest places in a society in terms of transmission. Yeah, especially if those kids are vaccinated. Dr. Right. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. You Appreciate it. it. A house divided cannot stand, but one year in, President Biden and his vision of bridging political divides faces the reality 
of his own party broken into factions. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. We have this breaking news for you now. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection has just subpoenaed four close allies of Donald Trump, including Rudy Giuliani. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reed, who's breaking this for us. Paula, walk us through who's on this list. The House Select Committee investigating January 6th just firing off four subpoenas to Trump allies who helped push the big lie. As you just noted, the biggest name on this list Rudy Giuliani, the longtime personal attorney to former President Trump, who helped spearhead efforts to try to uncover evidence of election fraud and undermine the results of the 2020 election. Now, they're also targeting two other individuals who once served as attorneys to former President Trump. The first is Jenna Ellis. Now, she circulated two memos purporting to analyze uh, how former Vice President Mike Pence could either delay or stop the counting of electoral votes. The committee also firing off a subpoena to Sidney Powell, who was once part of the Trump legal team that she was eventually pushed out, one of the loudest voices pushing the big lie. Also a subpoena for Trump advisor Boris Epstein. Now he is significant because he attended meetings at the Willard Hotel, which was the location of the so-called war room for many Trump allies trying to brainstorm ways to stop the certification of the electoral results. According to the committee, he also spoke with former President Trump on January 6th about their options to make that happen. Now, Jake, we know from our sources that as recently as late last week, lawmakers were asking witnesses about Giuliani and about Powell. Specifically with Rudy Giuliani, they were asking witnesses, some of his close associates, including former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, they were asking how Rudy Giuliani's work was funded, what he was doing who was directing him. They also asked about those comments he made at the rally on January 6th, calling for, quote, trial by combat. Interestingly, Jake, they also asked specifically when it came to Sidney Powell how she came to be removed from the Trump legal team. So clearly, these are big targets for the committee. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst, Laura Coates. Laura, um, what do you make of these new subpoenas for Rudy Giuliani, uh, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and Boris Epstein? Well, first, people probably wonder themselves, Jake, what took so long? These were people who were very prominent in the media for their role in promoting the big lie, which we know, of course, in part, actually developed into the January 6th insurrection. But the timing of it is so critical here because it's the end of the investigation towards the end of more than 300 witnesses at this point in time by the committee. And I'm assuming that they've had all those people to lay the foundational bricks to be able to corroborate in anticipation of their testimony. As a prosecutor, why you do that is because you want to have all of your I's dotted, your T's crossed to be able to compare their statements against other statements, to build enough evidence and sense to say and understand and decipher truth from fiction. And so that these people, the most prominent of all, and up to, of course, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, the former president, having them at this juncture is really telling me that they were building in many respects a lot of corroborating evidence that could support and substantiate early witnesses. And now they're going to compare what they say now. And I note Sidney Powell, for one, has civil lawsuits already in terms of defamation and her statements on Dominion, as does Giuliani. So they have that worth, that wealth of evidence as well. Well, they have those civil cases against uh, those companies, those election companies. Uh, They say that they defamed them and hurt their business model. But as a general note, Uh, even though these four are notorious liars about the election, 
that's not a crime, right? So what is the committee hoping to, to get? Well, you're right. And again, the civil case versus what the DOJ might come up with, which is criminal context, this is the congressional committee who has legislative and oversight function. They have said from the very beginning, they're trying to figure out what led up to the events to try to either fortify certain laws or to fill in the gaps from what was legal and what ought to be illegal and try to figure out who contributed to what they saw that day and afterwards and before. And so these are the jigsaw puzzle pieces in terms of figuring out what are the missing links here? Was there somebody else that they were answering to? Were they answering to somebody else's directives? Is there somebody who even above them it has played a role in all of these things? And of course, it doesn't take a rocket science to realize this is the orbit in many respects of the former president of the United States. And so I can't tell if they're circling around as vultures at this point, or they are themselves going to be the top fish that they'll actually look to say, all right, the buck stopped here and we have all that we need to now have to conclude what transpired provide to the American people. Now, I would note, Jake, they've already talked about having public hearings. And so I'm wondering if these will be the people they will look to to provide those public hearings and statements, or will there be other people? And I'm wondering what each of these individuals will say, knowing that they've already said in their civil lawsuits in many respects, what they've already said publicly on airwaves, on podcasts, and writing, wherever it might be, at their own press conferences, how will it compare? And what will they say now under a congressional subpoena if they even choose to answer. All right, Laura, stay with me. In a little bit, I'm going to talk to you about your amazing uh, new legal memoir uh, that's out today, a real page turner. So stay right there. Coming up next, call it a political flashback, the shift shown by one poll, a shift that has not happened since 1995. Stay with us. In our politics lead, President Biden is set to hold a news conference tomorrow as he prepares to start his second year in office. And despite some major accomplishments, including a bipartisan trillion dollar infrastructure law and a major ramp up of vaccine production and availability, President Biden is also facing a slew of horrific domestic headlines and growing global threats. And in some polls, astoundingly low approval ratings. CNN's Jeff Zeleny takes a closer look right now at the highs and lows of Biden's first year as Commander-in-Chief. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge, and unity is the path forward. As President Biden enters his second year in office, that unity is elusive, with the very same crisis and challenge still burning red hot and complicating his path forward. The optimism from Biden's inaugural address, bringing America together, tempered by the bitter reality of a capital and a nation even more divided, and a president scrambling to find his footing. From an unrelenting pandemic, to stubborn inflation, to dangerous threats to democracy at home and across the globe, the White House is trying to reset and restore a floundering presidency. Tonight, election reform on the cusp of failing in the Senate, the latest example of the limits of presidential power in today's Washington where Republicans are loath to cooperate and Democrats with a razor-thin majority struggle to compromise. There's been a lot of progress made. Uh, We need to build on that. The work is not done. The job is not done. Uh, And we are certainly not conveying it as. Still in March, Biden signed a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan to ease the economic fallout from COVID-19. And months later, a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan. A landmark accomplishment that has eluded presidents of both parties. Despite the cynics, Democrats and Republicans can 
come together and deliver results. But that bipartisan bridge did not extend to the second part of his economic agenda, the Build Back Better plan, stalled in the Senate and facing an uphill road in this midterm election year. But above all, top White House officials concede the first year of the Biden presidency has been complicated and consumed by coronavirus. <laughs> Remarkable gains were made on vaccines, but the president's summertime declaration of success proved utterly premature. It no longer controls our lives. It no longer paralyzes our nation. And it's within our power to make sure it never does again. A fall wave of the Delta variant, followed by a winter surge of Omicron, laid bare the failures in COVID testing and eroded confidence once again in the administration's grasp of the crisis. It's clearly not enough. If I'd, we'd known, we would have gone harder, quicker if we could have. On the world stage, Biden reassured allies after the whiplash of the Trump era. America is back. Yet the prospect of a new Cold War is now an urgent fear. That was not apparent during Biden's summit with Vladimir Putin in June, which focused on cyber attacks a threat overshadowed by Russia's aggression toward Ukraine. Look ahead in three to six months and say, did the things we agreed to sit down and try to work out, did it work? Biden sought to reset the Russian relationship. Now Putin is testing Biden and Western allies. For all the challenges outside any president's control, one of the most devastating periods of Biden's first year was a decision that he made and stands behind. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. The swift fall of the Afghanistan government and the chaotic evacuation that followed, including 13 Americans killed in a suicide bombing, raised critical questions about competence that Biden and his team still struggled to shake six months later. I take responsibility for the decision. Yet taking responsibility marks a noted change between Biden and his predecessor, who looms even larger one year out of office. That point was clear on the anniversary of the Capitol attack. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. And that, advisors say, is a glimpse into Biden's current mindset. He's no longer ignoring Trump and his assault on democracy. The outcome of his second year will help shape how Biden answers the biggest question of all, likely by this time next year. Will he run again? Now, there has been no president who entered this office with as much experience as Biden. Accomplishments, yes, but the string of recent setbacks really have eroded that sense of competence that once was Biden's calling card. Jake, at the news conference here tomorrow, look for the president to tout his accomplishments, as well as, I'm told, acknowledge those shortcomings as he tries to turn the page and chart a course for his second year. All right, right. Jeff Zellin at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Also on our politics lead, 1995 was the last time this many Americans identified as Republicans, according to a new Gallup poll. That was right after the 1994 Republican Revolution, of course, when the GOP had just taken control of the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enson, is here. Harry, you see Gallup shift in political identification as possibly part of a trend? Yeah, I do. Uh, You know, look, simply what Gallup is asking is, are you a Democrat, Republican, or independent? And then among independents, which way do you lean towards the Democrats or Republicans? Look at what we see so far this year. Now, there are a lot of numbers on the screen that you'll see, but here's the key thing to take away from it among Gallup is, look, back in the beginning of 2021, Demo- a lot more people identified as Democrats and Republicans. Democrats had a nine-point advantage on party affiliation. 
But flip forward to the end of the year, October to December, what do you see? You see that now more people are identifying as Republicans than Democrats by five points. Now, the question I had was whether or not this poll was an outlier. So I looked at the Kaiser Family Foundation polling as well. And what do you see there? You see basically the exact same trend line. You go back to January, March of 2021, and you see that Democrats had this large 14-point lead. Jump ahead to October and December, and now that Democratic advantage has smushed considerably down to just three points. So the same trend on Gallup and Kaiser Family Foundation with Americans moving towards the Republican Party, at least in how they affiliate themselves. And you're seeing this shift in party identification trending along the same lines as President Biden's approval numbers. That's exactly right. You know, why are more people identifying now as Republicans than Democrats, or at least more at least in the Gallup poll and overall the shift towards Republicans. And I would make the argument it's because folks really just don't like the job that Joe Biden is doing as president. So if you look at Joe Biden's net job approval rating, what you see is in the beginning of 2021, it was plus 16 points. Many more people approved than disapproved. Jump ahead to October and December. What do you see? Minus 10. Many poor people disapproved and approved. And that is occurring at the same time where that large Democratic advantage on party affiliation, which was 12 points in the average of polls in January, March, actually switched to a GOP advantage of plus one in the average of the Kaiser and Gallup polling. What about independent voters? Yeah. You know, if you ask independent voters, which way do you lean? This, I think, is the key nugget, right? Which is they are the swing voters. And what you see now is in October to December, they are more likely to lean Republican than Democratic by plus five percentage points. From January to March, the Democrats had a nine point advantage. So very clearly, independents moving towards the Republican Party. So should we expect something of a, a Republican romp in the midterm elections this November? Historically speaking, what we see over the last four cycles, if you look at 2006, 2010, 2014, and 2018, when Democrats have a clear advantage on the generic ballot, they win in both 2006 and 2018. You look at 2010, 2014, looks a lot like the polling now, the GOP won. And here's the other thing to keep in mind is if you ask voters, if they're Democrats or Republicans, which way are they going to vote in the midterms? The fact that more people are identifying as Republican now is key because people basically vote along the lines of how they affiliate themselves. All right, Harry Enson, thanks so much. True crime that is hard to believe and a revealing window into the American legal system. A renowned prosecutor makes her case next. In the national lead, a unique look into legal system in America, the legal system. It's not really a justice system, is it? My next guest spent years in the courtroom in private practice, then as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice. She investigated alleged voting rights violations and prosecuted violent felony offenses, including drug trafficking and child abuse and sexual assault. Today, she is giving us a glimpse into what the process is really like. Let me welcome back to the show CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates. Her new book is out today. It's called Just Pursuit, a Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a compelling read. It's, it's a, about incredibly important issues, but also it's a real page turner, very crisp writing. So, Laura, you really open the curtain into life as a federal prosecutor. The book opens with you saying that you thought the job would be an uncomplicated act of patriotism uh, and that justice was when a person was fairly tried and convicted for their crime. And it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. 
It is. And I, I thank you for having me on today to talk about it because I really do try to pull back that curtain, Jake. It's not a book I think people thought I would write. They thought I would write maybe a very uh, Supreme Court-oriented text of a law school classroom. But instead, I really wanted to make it a narrative memoir that really personified the issues of today that are so important. And look, if we're going to speak truth to power, shouldn't we first know the truth? I think we should. And I tell it here. You were a prosecutor in D.C. In one scene, uh, you give the testimony of a 73-year-old woman. She had her car stolen. In her victim impact statement, she says, quote, of the, of, the, uh, of the person who stole it, he's a child. He made a mistake. White children get to joyride, but this black boy is chained on the other side of a table, and you're asking me to help keep him that way. And she goes on to say, I know what this so-called justice system does when it gets its claws into black boys, unquote. Um, a really compelling thing for a victim of a crime uh, to say. Um, How often did you see this theme repeated, young black men convicted of a crime, and and then they never leave the legal system? I mean, more often than not, once you're within it, it becomes a hamster wheel. It's not just a revolving door, it's a hamster wheel, and you really cannot get off because they have parole, they've got um, the, the absence of second chances. And that chapter really talks about the poignance and the moments of real humanity and expressions of second chances and knowing that the justice system, if there is one, has to do as much with redemption as it does with retribution. And having someone come in who understood the interconnectivity between sociology and politics and the history of race in America and the evolution since the 13th Amendment, to know in that moment and be a champion for somebody. You know, when I was saying Laura Coates on behalf of the people of the United States, I knew that meant that it had to include the defendant as well as one of those people. But to have a victim of a crime who you would think would be at odds with and against, understand the real nuance of decency and second chances, it's one of those moments, a rare glimpse into how humanity has played a part in our system as well. But it's far and few between. The, the book has so many amazing and horrific stories. Um, chapter 10 the jaw-dropping, enraging scene involving a, a judge, a woman judge, we should note, who is distracted during the testimony of a teenage girl allegedly raped by her, essentially her stepfather. When asked to approach the bench, you were there for a separate case, you write, quote, the angle revealed what was now on her screen, a shoe-shopping website. While a child had poured her heart out, relaying the trauma of serial rape without the benefit of even her mother as either a protector or champion, the judge was trying to find a cognac knee-high boot that fit an extra wide calf, unquote. Again, that was the judge who ultimately completely discarded and discounted what this young victim uh, testified about. How often do you think the judges are part of the problem? You know, I have to tell you, Jake, that chapter is so harmful and hurtful for so many reasons. And here's why. You know, we assume, particularly in an era of the Me Too movement, when the mantra and the slogan is believe women in the court of public opinion, how it actually looks in the court of law is something that is such a perverse notion. And we expect, as women, I believe, that another woman would at least have the decency of extending the benefit of the doubt or at least give somebody the open-mindedness and objectivity, let alone a judge who we know when we have a delayed case of sexual reporting, of, of sexual assault reporting, 
Um, the Cosby cases are a prime example we'll talk about, the Weinstein era of cases, the most recent in terms of Ghislaine Maxwell, the reasons for which people have delayed in their reports. We oftentimes don't want a jury because we know about the preconceived notions. We are afraid of the subjectivity and about the bias. And the assumption was that a judge and a woman at that might be better positioned to be able to give the impartiality. And yet and still, we see, even in those instances, that bias has a role in our justice system. And I tried to expose it to ensure people realize what is at stake. And it's not just a verdict or a policy reform. It's a comprehensive system. Yeah, the judge criticized the victim for what she wore in court. You couldn't, I mean, you can't even believe it. Laura Coates, my friend, congratulations on the new book. I really highly recommend it for everybody watching right now. It's called Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Laura, good to see you again. Thanks. Thank you uh, so much for joining us. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. Under the sea, a volcanic eruption causing a tsunami. You're not going to want to miss these photographs next. Stay with us. Finally, in our world lead today, you may have seen the satellite pictures of this past weekend's undersea volcanic eruption near the Pacific island nation of Tonga. The eruption caused tsunami warnings all around the Pacific Rim, including the U.S. West Coast. And now we're getting our first good look at Tonga itself. These are before and after satellite images. All you see now is gray, gray volcanic ash coating everything. Tongan officials call it an unprecedented disaster. Three deaths are confirmed. There's a drinking water shortage and almost no internet or phone service. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. I think he's next door in the Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.